Did anyone see that Taylor Swift fight last month? No, I'm not talking about her Twitter feud with Nicki Minaj. I'm talking about her showdown with Apple. When Apple announced its new music streaming service, it tried to entice new users by offering a free three-month trial, but it said it wouldn't pay artists royalties during the trial period. And that's when Tay-Tay got involved. Swift wrote a big public letter on her Tumblr criticizing the company, and Apple caved, like, the next day. They said they would pay royalties, and Swift became a hero to musicians everywhere. Well, the brief tension of this public debate also surfaced one of the entertainment industry's eternal questions. How does making music make money in the internet age? I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and today on Radio Berkman, we're going to break down the complicated economics of the music industry. I mean, can you explain how a musician pays their rent? I can try. Radio Berkman producer Elizabeth Gillis joins us again. She's been looking into this weird system of contracts and micropayments. Yep, and now that people aren't buying CDs anymore, we're trying to figure out how the money gets from the listener to the musician. So, streaming services. We mentioned Apple's new service, but there's also Spotify, Pandora, YouTube. Amazon, Rhapsody, Ardio, Songza, Tidal. That's Jay-Z's new streaming service. Yeah, there's a ton of them. It's a big market. According to ABI Research, a company that studies the tech market, in about three years, nearly 200 million people will be subscribed to some music streaming service. And by 2018, including all the money made since the service is launched, paid subscription will have brought in $46 billion in total revenue. It's no wonder Apple wants a slice of the pie. Streaming currently is the primary way that music is being consumed. That's Panos Panay. At least among people of of a younger generation. Dare I say, it is in many ways pointing to the future of music consumption. He's the founder and managing director of the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. Earlier this month, they released a paper called Fair Music, Transparency and Payment Flows in the Music Industry as part of a project called Rethink Music. Their report puts it like this. I'll read this one. It says, The advent of the internet and the development of digital technology have collectively created profound disruptions in the music industry. So unless we find an economically viable way to compensate the makers of this awesome art form called music, then clearly we'll have bigger issues as we head into the future. You see, streaming has presented a challenge to the industry because it breaks the mold as to how everybody gets paid for music production. There used to be a structure where artists got a negotiated cut of album sales and ticket sales, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah, and then Napster, they basically normalized music piracy, remember that? Which freaked the music industry out. And then iTunes came in and made it possible to buy individual tracks for 99 cents apiece, which freaked the music industry out. You probably weren't really conscious of it, but the value of a song diminished in your mind. And the idea of buying a whole $15 album? Forget about it. Yeah, I pretty much stopped buying full albums when iTunes came out. It's just, I get the one or two songs that I wanted. And the revenue stream shrunk. Everyone panicked. Now that streaming is catching on, people don't even care about owning the song anymore. They just want to be able to listen to it. So how much exactly are people streaming? According to Nielsen, a company that keeps track of media consumption, everyone listening to music combined streamed 164 billion tracks last year alone. Okay, that's, um, that's, let let me do the math real quick on that. It's four minutes a song. We'd be talking about 656 billion minutes. Yep, that's Taylor Swift singing Shake It Off on repeat for more than one million years. It's like I got 
Okay, that's a lot of Taylor. There is a good that's produced for less money than ever before. You can distribute that cheaper than ever before. You have more people consuming that in more ways, faster and cheaper than ever before. But yet, if you look at the entire sort of chain of, of people involved, from the streaming services to the labels to the artists, almost no one is profitable. Almost no one is making money. So there's just something fundamentally wrong there. Every time you stream a song, you drop a coin into this tip jar. But that coin doesn't go straight to the artist. It gets chopped up and distributed to a whole bunch of other tip jars. How many tip jars exactly? Well... It's an industry that has, in some situations, as many as 40 different intermediaries between the consumer and the producer of that particular good. That's unsustainable. That needs to change. Wait, 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 wait. 40 different people taking a little cut here and there before it even gets to the person whose name is on the track. Basically, yeah. And I should point out that none of this is transparent. The consumer doesn't know clearly where the money goes, and neither does the artist. And also because of the way that some of these monies flow, and because of the existence of uh, non-disclosure agreements that govern some of these relationships, it's not easy to sort of shed a light into even how much money we're, we're talking about and who the rightful owners of this money would be. To give you an example from the paper, artists are given these PDF documents detailing how they are going to get paid from streaming services. In one case, a group was given 119 pages every quarter containing 2,600 lines of data. And then and there were all these mistakes where a song would have a typo, so in one report, it's mentioned in two different places. But we live in an age of data, right? My bank can text me if I've even been charged a penny anywhere in the world. Why are we talking about PDFs? You know, there's been a lack of, of investment in an underlying technology infrastructure that can facilitate this, as well as, let's face it, a lack of real motivation. What's the motivation for me to spend millions of dollars to fundamentally change my accounting infrastructure. But it's not all hopeless. It should work. It should do better. It shouldn't be an industry that's been in decline. It should be an industry that's thriving. The shakeout hasn't fully taken place yet in terms of really reinventing itself for a very different century and for a public and a consumer that's accessing, consuming, and willing to pay for it in very different ways. Okay, well, this sounds good. The music industry starts using the technology that everyone else uses to track transactions, and suddenly everybody's happy. Kind of. Just make the whole thing more transparent. But I mean, this is only one way to approach the future of music. What do you mean? Well, one of the incoming fellows at the Berkman Center, he's a musician. His name's Damon Krakowski, and he's written about the economics of music for publications like Pitchfork. I sat in on a conversation with him a few weeks ago where he talked about this. You know, as a musician, I've just been, you know, I feel sort of like swept up by the stream, quite literally, in that I've had no alternative but to go with this. And the reason is that our alternatives as an as a indie band, as a small band, a niche band, any way you want to look at it that's not pop, our alternatives have been eliminated. Krakowski has made a career as a small local musician. He started his career before music became digital. The network that I came into in music was a very scrappy punk rock network, and it depended on a whole string of small businesses. He's not just talking about record stores. We recorded for a small label who distributed through an independent distributor who went to small stores, and we performed in small venues to promote those records. And our records were played on college radio, which was nonprofit. So, And that whole system is really no longer 
economically viable to sustain a band. Just recently, two small clubs in the Boston area, like the ones that Krakowski would have played in, announced at their closing. His music is on streaming services and these other websites where fans can choose to contribute money to stream or download music, but he's not sold on the model. My thoughts about streaming as a viable economic alternative for musicians, that has not changed. It's not viable, and I don't think it will be. For anyone who's dealing below the level of megastardom, Well, he just needs to talk to Panay, right? We'll get this all straightened out. Hold on there. Krakowski makes a good point. Changes in the music industry present a special set of challenges for smaller niche musicians. In a Pitchfork piece published a few years ago, Krakowski presents some pretty startling statistics. This song, Tugboat, by his band Galaxy 500, was played 7,800 times on Pandora in the first quarter of 2012. For all those plays, the songwriters were paid a total of 21 cents, or 7 cents each. I asked Panay about this. For local, small indie bands that might not have a huge following, how do you see streaming affecting them? Do you think that they fit in this model? Well, in in funny ways, I, I actually think that some of these indie bands are benefiting more than artists that are signed to major record labels because... Their deals are not shrouded in, in as much secrecy as artists that are signed to the big three labels. You know, is it, is it easy for an emerging artist to stand out? No. Has it ever been easy? I don't think so. You and I are caught using the word indie. I don't really know what that means anymore. Right, right. That's true, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of a very, very different, uh, different era. So for me, that mindset, whether you want to call it indie, whether you want to call it startup, is something that, frankly, all artists need to, need to embrace. And whether it's social media, whether it's crowdfunding, as a way of, of continuing to sustain their, their career. So artists with the small audience, they just need to get a little more creative. Yeah, essentially. There isn't one clear path developing for the future of the industry. It's not really get discovered, get signed, get money. And Krakowski, he's continued to make music through all these changes. It's made him think about his career in a different way. That I think you might find pretty interesting. I have a more radical idea. It seems to me that really if we just gave away streams, if we stopped as musicians trying to lay claim to any ownership on them, any intellectual property over the stream, and stop trying to collect these fractions of pennies for their use. I actually wonder if a much more healthy, truly viable alternative would arise out of out of the stream. Okay, I think we should have like a record scratch here. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, what, wait, what? Let go? Five minutes ago, we were saying that streaming is going to be a $46 billion industry. You're very right, but just hear him out. I see models for that in previous shifts in in technology like the beginning of recording as in the late 19th century yep until pretty recently actually so when recording first started you couldn't copyright the recording you could not copyright sounds in the air because what's that you can't say you own the air and when music was sheet music it was copywritten for the page and the record was seen as a representation of the performance it wasn't seen as a physical object that had an ownable quality to itself. And I think we're kind of back, we're in another moment where maybe you just got to admit you don't own a digital stream. 
I mean, you can't resell it. Okay, you're blowing my freaking mind here. Right? I mean, since copyright came to the recording industry, the internet happened. So a lot of things have changed. That's when the law changed its tune, so to speak. The first rulings were all in favor of no copyright for the music. And then it was actually Congress had to rewrite the copyright law to rescue any ownership over music recordings. So without getting too tangential here, the digitizing of music has given us a lot to think about, including the nature of ownership and copyright. Music listeners, artists, everyone who has a part in the industry has a role in figuring out where the stream fits into this discussion. That report Panos Panay was working on with the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship at Berklee School of Music it proposes so many possible ways to move forward. According to what they found in their research, it starts with realizing the potential of the digital age. The technology to make payments more transparent, it already exists. Now we just have to use it. And for everyone listening, I know you listen to music. And simply by doing that, you hold a stake in how this all pans out. But at the end of the day, I feel that as the industry is, is shifting away from an ownership model to more of a sharing or rental model, and where we're going from dollars to effectively pennies, that for this to become a, a sustainable, viable industry, not just for artists, but for everybody involved, this investment and this uh, commitment needs to be made. A A healthy ecosystem, at the end of the day, benefits everyone. Well, thank you so much, Liz, as always. We'll link to the full report mentioned in today's show, Fair Music, Transparency, and Payment Flows in the Music Industry, on today's show notes at cyber.law.harvard.edu. It's worth the read, guys. There is so much we couldn't get into the show. You can also find links to more of Damon Krakowski's music, which you're listening to in the background right now. And Krakowski will be joining the Berkman Center in the fall to work on a new book about the transition from an analog to a digital world. We'll also post a link to his longer interview with Beatrice Igni Bianchi, where he talks about getting inspiration from a field of science called sound studies and gives advice to any young musicians out there. This week's episode was produced by Elizabeth Gillis with me, Daniel Dennis-Jones. Beatrice Igni Bianchi contributed to reporting from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 